Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. Unfortunately, there's an economic incentive around turning us into Tyrannosaurus Rexes where we're drawn towards movement and violence rather than having a civil conversation. And of all these problems, whether it's teen depression, whether it's failing young men, income inequality, exploding costs in higher education, the problem I would argue is the biggest problem relative to the attention it's getting is that if America's problems are a horror movie, you would say the call is coming from inside the house. And that is a third of each political party sees the other party as their mortal enemy. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 218 of Passion Struck, ranked by Apple as one of the top 20 health podcasts. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or you would like to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash Packs or Spotify to get started. And in case you missed my episodes from last week, we had two amazing book launches. The first was with Harvard professor Max H. Bazerman, and we discussed his brand new book, Complicit. I also had on another Harvard professor, neuroscientist and psychiatrist, Chris Palmer, and we discussed his brand new book, Brain Energy. And my solo episode last week was on the science of motivation and eight ways that you can become and stay motivated. Please check them all out. I also wanted to say thank you so much for your continued ratings and reviews, which go such a long way for helping us boost our rating, but more importantly, grow the passion struck community. Now let's talk about today's episode. We are now coming to grips with our post-pandemic future. We are faced with overwhelming political extremism, quiet quitting, and the great resignation, which are affecting organizations everywhere, as well as supply chain problems, which are crushing company profits. This raises some daunting questions. Is American democracy under attack? How will technology continue to alter our lives? What does the future of work look like for me? America and the world are on the cusp of enormous change. This change will not only disrupt the world economy, as we see today playing out all around us, but it is also destroying the financial backbone of our country and many around the world, the middle class. But how did we get to this precipice? Where are we heading and what will we become? Our guest today, Scott Galloway, tackles this and so much more in his new book, Adrift. Scott is an NYU Stern School of Business professor of marketing and a serial entrepreneur. He's the best-selling author of Post-Corona, The Four, and The Algebra of Happiness, and formerly was on the boards of the New York Times Company, Urban Outfitters, and Berkeley Haas's School of Business. His Pref G and Pivot podcasts, No Mercy, No Malice blog, and Profess G YouTube channel reach millions. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am absolutely ecstatic to welcome Scott Galloway to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I wanted to congratulate you on your new book, Adrift. I'll make sure in our YouTube we put a big picture of it, but I found it to be an extremely well-written, compelling vision of what America looks like today with some great ideas on the path that we can take going forward. So congratulations on that. Oh, thanks for saying that. I, yeah, I enjoyed writing it. Well, I like to start out these interviews by allowing the audience to get to know you if they're not familiar with you. And a question I like to use is we all have different defining moments in our life. What is a moment or moments that defined who you are today? The kind of seminal moment in my life in terms of my behavior from that point forward and the way I viewed the world was when my first son 
uh, was born. I mean, you're supposed to feel, or I thought after watching all these Hallmark Channel movies about birth, that I'd be immediately in love with this thing and feel this sense of awe and wonder and love for it. And I just felt a lot of fear and anxiety around the need to get my shit together and make more money and have a more consistent professional life. And because it just all of a sudden dawned on me that for the first time in my life, and I had kids later, it wasn't all about me. And it got me focused. I think it's the first time you're really an adult. And that is you think about someone else more than yourself. But that kind of changed in terms of who I am now, what most of my actions bubble up to. It's that I want to be a good dad. I want to provide economic security for my family. And it focuses me. But that was the moment where everything changed, if you will, John. Yeah, I know for me, the birth of my own son, who's now 24, was a pretty pinnacle moment for many of the same reasons. I was at the point of transitioning from the military and at that point thought I was going to go into the FBI. And literally a week before I was supposed to join Quantico, there was a congressional funding shortfall. And so my class got recycled. And so here I am with no plan B, a family to support everything else. And it really dawned on me, similar to you from that point forward, that I really have to be on my A game to support not only me, but this family I'm creating. So I can resonate that with that very well. Yeah, it's these healthy instincts kick in. And when you're single and it's just you, your failures are private. I'm a reasonably talented guy. I always thought I could make a living. I always made enough money to have nice clothes and a big TV and a decent place to live and have nice vacations. But there's no dancing between the raindrops once you have kids. They just, they can't sleep on a couch. And, you know, just not only that, just not only beyond economics, I've just been so good at getting selfish. And there's something also really rewarding about kids that I wasn't expecting. And that is started Thursday and by Friday, I was very focused on what I was going to do to be increasingly fabulous every weekend. What fabulous people was I going to have brunch with? What fabulous things was I going to do? Who was I going to hang out with? What fabulous stuff was I going to buy? It was just, it wasn't exhausting. It was fun. But after a long time doing that, it's a bit relaxing. Once you have kids, your weekends are set. It's like, okay, we got a birthday party on Saturday. We got soccer practice on Sunday. It's liberating and freeing in some ways to not be thinking about yourself all the time. So I've actually, I've enjoyed it. It took me a few years to get used to it but I've enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I agree with you. And I've been through all those different seasons. Now, my last child just started college. There you go. <laughs> but so reversal in time. Well, the lens that we do this podcast through is how do you help people create an intentional life? And as mm -hmm. I was reading your book, one of the things that dawned on me is we have become as a society and as Americans, very unintentional in many aspects of the way we're leading that life, which I think has been a cornerstone to our country and much of Western society as we know it becoming adrift. But you lay out some pretty shocking statistics on the state of America and why you feel we are adrift. Can you discuss some of these statistics at a high level and why this is the case? Yeah, there's a lot that ails us, but I think you've got to understand the nuance behind it to begin thinking about addressing those problems. And, you know, it's kind of up and down the stack. There's some macro factors that would, I think, some of the problems that, that ail us. And if you were to try and find epicenters, there's a few. One of them is in the early 70s, something strange happened. And that is up until that point, productivity and wage growth moved in lockstep. And that is if the nation became more productive through management techniques or manufacturing or technology, what have you, salaries or wages would rise in an approximate proportion with productivity. And then in the 70s, the two disarticulated and wage growth has basically gone flat for 50 years, but productivity is up and to the right. So what we've had is a lot of prosperity, but not a lot of progress. And the delta between productivity and wage growth over the last 50 years amounts to literally trillions of dollars in surplus value that's been almost entirely captured by shareholders, of which 90% by dollar volume is owned by 1%. That's had a bunch of knock-on effects. We have, as people know, and it gets a lot of warranted attention, we have tremendous income inequality. We also have this sort of crowding, not only to the wealthiest, but to the oldest. 
And that is people over the age of 75 are 70% wealthier than they were 40 years ago. People under the age of 40 are about 20% less wealthy. And so what's happened for the first time in our nation's history is that a man or woman at 30 isn't doing as well as his or her mom was at 30. And that's the first time that's happened in our nation's history. And if you think about the fundamental compact, why we have taxes, laws, a government, a military, an economy, it's at the end of the day, it's such that the kind of central compact is if I play by the rules, my kids will do better than me. And for the first time, that compact's been broken. And I think a lot of it is that we've engaged my generation in elegant transfer of wealth from younger people to older people and from the bottom 90% to the top 10%. But when you're talking about the bottom 90%, you're not only talking about lower and middle income households, you're talking about the young. And that's the bad news is there's been tremendous inequality around age and income. The good news is that the incumbents will try and convince us that is a variety of factors that are beyond our control. And it's not. These problems are of our own making, which means they can be unmade. For example, the two biggest tax deductions in America are mortgage interest rates and capital gains. Who owns stock, owns homes? People my age who rents and who makes all of their money through current income or salary, young people. And we've decided to tax them at a higher rate than people my age who own stocks or assets get taxed. We have a transfer of wealth of a trillion and a half dollars a year from young people to old people in America in the form of social security. And I'm not suggesting we do away with social security, but it's called a tax, not a pension fund. It just feels as if everything, if you look at the major economic policies over the last 20, 30 years, it disproportionately benefits older people and disproportionately weighs on younger people. So the disarticulation of wage growth and productivity is a big one. The other one is the one that doesn't get as much attention is I do think we have a crisis around what I loosely term failing young men. And that is our school system, our educational system is biased against men. And that is primary school, K through 12, boys are twice as likely to be suspended on a behavior adjusted basis. So a boy and a girl in the principal's office for the exact same infraction, a boy is twice as likely to be suspended, a black boy five times as likely. So there's some societal dynamics. There's also just biological dynamics. A young man's prefrontal cortex doesn't develop. So two seniors in high school, if it's an 18-year-old girl and an 18-year-old boy, the girl is really competing against a 16-year-old. And as a result, seven to 10 high school valedictorians, two for every one female to male college graduate. So for every one male college graduate, we're going to have two female college graduates. So we have, I would argue that over the last 30 or 40 years, we've never seen a cohort fall as fast as we've seen young men. There's been some wonderful things, and it's not a zero-sum game. There's been a leveling up of women in terms of closing the wage gap, at least before they have children. We now have people of color have better representation in higher education, but young men are really struggling. And I think that's the income inequality epicenter gets a lot of attention. The failing young man is just starting to get some attention because there's this dangerous gag reflex that if you start talking about the problems with young men in the context of we should advocate for them or think about policies and programs that help them, it's immediately seen as anti-women. And I think now we're starting to have a more honest conversation. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's not a zero-sum game. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now 
and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. Yes, well, obviously, having kids who are 24 and 18, this is an area that is of much concern to me. And I'm sure with your kids being even younger than that, it's a concern for you as well. I know my son, who's 24, one of his biggest concerns is he did go to college. He does have a good job now. He's thinking about going back and getting his master's degree, and he's perplexed because things are changing at such a rapid pace. Where does he go from now? Especially when you look at the future and four to five hundred million jobs, if not more, are going to change over the next decade or two. So I think another aspect of this that's hitting this generation as well. But in the book, and I just wanted to hit on this age inequality, the statistics that you gave were that someone who was born in 1940 had a 92% chance of doing better than his or her parents. Someone born in 1970, when I was born, had a 61% chance. And a millennial born in 1984, who'd be 37 today, only has a 50% chance. If you look at both that age-based inequality that you talked about, and then this impact on males and education, what are the long-term ramifications of this if it keeps going the way it is? And then what is your recommendation on how we fix it? Yeah, there's some real knock-on effects. And that is, if you look at the most violent, unstable societies in the world, they have one commonality. And that is, they have a disproportionate number of young, angry, and broke men. And it's usually also, they have what's called Porsche polygamy. And that is the wealthiest decile of men are polygamists. They have multiple wives. And so uh, there's nothing more dangerous than a young man who has no guardrails in the form of a job, school, or a mate telling him, no, you can't go off and get in fights. And no, you need to get a job. Young men need guardrails in the forms of relationships. So when Salman Rushdie was attacked on stage a few months ago. I don't think that was about the fatwa. That was about a young man with no prospects living in his mother's basement. You're also seeing a generation of young men who don't get social skills, especially after COVID or during COVID, they become very disgruntled. They can get a reasonable facsimile of the dopa hit and reward of relationships, of work or of sex through a Robin Hood, video games or porn. And the problem is they become a social and don't develop the skills necessary to become economically or emotionally viable. And I worry that by the time they hit a certain age, they just enter into a tailspin and become so asocial that they begin looking for others to blame. They become more prone to misogynistic content. They become more prone to conspiracy theory, even weird things. They're less likely to believe that climate change is real. And uh, this individual is very unproductive for our society. In addition, you have lower birth rates. You have households that don't save as much. Once you get married, you're likely to develop economic security much faster. And I don't want to see all this through the lens of a heteronormative relationship. It's just two people who decide to become irrationally passionate about each other's well-being. It doesn't matter their sexual orientation. It doesn't even matter if they're not in a traditional marriage. It doesn't even matter if they're in a romantic relationship. Partnership is really the key. Relationships are the key across economic viability and even happiness. I worry there's a lot of factors stacked against men. And a longer conversation is, what does it mean to be masculine? And I think we need to redefine masculinity as protecting others, developing strength, both physical and mental, taking responsibility for the economic well-being of your household, which sometimes means getting out of the way of your partner who might be better at this whole money thing. But not only that, getting out every day and being aggressive around relationships, introducing yourself, asking potential professional contacts for coffee, saying hello to a stranger in the Starbucks line. There's nothing wrong with starting conversation with someone you find attractive. And if he or she is not interested in you, both of you will get over it. And that is not a crime. There's a difference between trying to initiate a conversation and harassing somebody. And if you don't know the difference, you've got bigger problems. So I worry that too many young people and too many Americans more generally aren't socializing and aren't bumping up against one another. The number of high school kids that sees their friends every day has been cut in half. 
We're no longer going to the mall, the movie theater. We're not going to work as often. And as a result, we're just not nearly as social. The number of people joining Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, playing in organized sports, even the number of people who speak to their neighbors has declined precipitously. And I think that's a very dangerous crisis in our society. We've destigmatized cancer. We destigmatized mental health. I think we're going to have an increasingly robust conversation around something that's plaguing our society, and that is just loneliness. The number of people who say they don't have a single friend has doubled in the last 20 years. And I think a, you served. Um, I think of those Japanese soldiers who were left behind in the Philippine islands and told to go into the hills and hold the island. And some of them were up there for 10 or 20 years alone. They learned nothing. They accomplished nothing. They would occasionally come down and wreak havoc in a village, but they didn't learn survival techniques. They didn't, there was no spiritual enlightenment. They learned nothing. And uh, I worry that we aren't investing in the institutions, whether it's parks, sports leagues, what some, some New York Times tried to refer to as third spaces, opportunities for educational advancement, opportunities for national service. I believe that, and I'm going into solutions now, I believe that we should have some sort of conscription or national service. I look at Israel and I look at some Northern European countries that demand service for the young people. And I think it's paid off in spades. I think that there's a, a tremendous fraying of our connective tissue in terms of what should bind us. And that is that we're all Americans. And in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we just had a much easier time leading and passing legislation that was bipartisan because our elected leaders saw themselves as Americans well before they saw themselves as Republicans or Democrats because they'd all served in the same uniform. So I'd like to see some sort of national service. I'd like to see a serious investment in an expansion of our public universities not only to let in more men, but to let in more people of color, more women. When I applied to UCLA, the acceptance rate was 76%. This year, it'll be 6%. So college has become this kind of enforcer of the caste system where the top 1%, who are 77 times more likely to get into an elite university than the bottom 99%, and the freakishly remarkable get in and we try and turn them into billionaires. And I don't think that's what America is about. I think America is about finding unremarkable kids and giving them remarkable opportunities through higher education. In addition, we also need to recognize that college isn't for everybody. And I would lean on these public universities in exchange for this funding to expand their capacity or their supply through infrastructure and technology investments. We should lean on them to bust out of this traditional liberal arts four-year degree and start thinking about one-year degrees in specialty construction, 18-month degrees in cybersecurity. LA Unified School District right now has been brought to its knees because of a cyber attack because they can't find anyone to be in cybersecurity for them. We need to break out of this fetishization of an elite university, go to work at Google or KKR. There are a lot of great jobs out there installing energy efficient HVAC, trying to figure out a way to, to repair an electric vehicle. Anyone who's renovated their house knows there's a lot of demand for skilled artisans. In the UK and Germany, if you look at a thousand job titles, 33 of those titles are apprentice. In the United States, it's three. In Germany, 50% of their citizens have some sort of vocational training. In the US, it's five. So national service, a dramatic expansion and rethinking of higher education to include vocational training. I believe we need to massively simplify the tax code. I'm not saying raise or lower taxes, but the tax code's gone from 400 pages to 4,000 which is a transfer of wealth to the rich because people in my income bracket can afford Sherpas and tax lawyers to navigate the tax code and use it to our advantage. Lower middle income tax audits have been automated, which means they get audited more. And whereas wealthy people's taxes are so complicated now that they can't be automated. So you have an increase in enforcement across lower middle income households and a decrease in enforcement across our wealthiest households. You also have seen tax rates plummet once you get to the 99th percentile. And I'll stop here because I know this is a bit of a word salad, but it's easy to say poor lower and middle income households have taken the brunt of our tax policy. And there's some truth to that. But the group that's actually fared the worst in terms of changes to the tax code over the last 30 years have been what I refer to as the workhorses. And that is take a couple and they've played by the rules. They've got good college educations. They work really hard. They're good citizens and they make between, call it 200,000 and a million dollars a year. Mom's a partner in a law firm, dad's a chiropractor. Those individuals usually have to live in an urban center for those types of jobs, usually in a blue state. 
And they're probably paying an effective tax rate of somewhere between 45 and 54%. And they have enough money to live well. No one feels sorry for them. But if they don't make the jump to light speed and have enough excess income after paying half their money in taxes and figuring out a way to live a decent life in an urban area, which is usually very expensive, if they're not able to aggregate stocks and apartments and assets such that they can take the majority of their income to capital gains, they get stuck in this very high tax rate. If they make the jump to light speed and they can open nine chiropractic facilities and buy apartment buildings and stocks, their tax rate plummets. So we can max out in terms of taxation at the workhorses. And then the thoroughbreds, the people who become very wealthy, the tax rate plummets. So we have a progressive tax structure up until kind of the semi-wealthy, and then it plummets and becomes regressive. And I think we should reverse that. Well, I'm going to comment on a number of things that you just went through. Having had two kids who just went through this college process over the past five to six years, here in Florida, it has become almost next to impossible to get into the University of Florida, uh, which is now now ranked in the top five for the first time of all public colleges. But in my daughter's class, which had roughly 400 graduates, I think less than 10 actually got into UF. She was fortunate to, but the competition is so immense. I think she had to have 1,400 or above SATs as just a prerequisite to put that into perspective. So it, as you're saying, is becoming harder and harder. And I think my son even had a more difficult time. But where I wanted to go with this is I think we have, over the past decades, become more and more a society of individualism. You start talking about this in the book back in 1980, and I have to say, I was about 10 at the time, and I remember very little from the Carter administration. I remember a lot more from the Reagan administration, but you lay it out that during that period of time, Reagan did away with liberalism and really shifted the focus to individualism. And I recently interviewed Douglas Rushkoff, may know him, but he recently did a book called Survival of the Richest. And whether you agree with the book or not, component of it that I thought was pretty interesting was how the technologies that are grabbing our attention, something else you talk about in the book, have all been made to reward individualism because these social networks really don't get any revenue from getting us to collaborate or to do this in a group setting. And as you look at the youth that we've been talking about, and you brought up loneliness. Um, I recently did an episode on this. There have been two 20-year studies worldwide that have shown 33% of all humans in over 100 countries are lonely. In the United States, 45% of adults have been found to be lonely. And I think this is just causing this disengagement at work and hopelessness and helplessness. So Again, I wanted to ask, what were some of the findings that you found around this attention economy that's happening and what have been some of the ramifications and how do we fix it? So a lot there, but I just want to comment on the University of Florida. My sister went to the University of Florida. I lived in Florida for 10 years. As a nation, we just philosophically have to change our complexion and recognize that we accidentally, I don't think maliciously, became a rejectionist, exclusionary culture, as evidenced by our higher education. And that is once you have your degree from UF, you applaud the dean and like that it's gotten harder to get into because it makes your degree worth more. Once you have a house, you show up to the local architectural board or the planning board and try and discourage any new development because that just makes your house worth more. Once you have a tech company, You spend a lot of money on politicians to try and ensure that if you uh, turn into a monopoly, you're not broken up such that smaller companies can't emerge. And we all as parents fall under the delusion for a short time that our kid's in the top 1% and that he or she will be the one that gets into UF. And you hear UF graduates, and along with every other graduate, say at cocktail parties, well, I would never get in now. And they say it as a source of pride. 
Well, that means your daughter's not getting in. And we also fall into this illusion or delusion of complexity that they can't expand the university, that universities will say we can't go bigger. If you stacked Harvard's endowment in $100 bills, the height of that stack would be so great that the Virgin Orbital One couldn't clear it. And yet they let in 1,500 students. We can scale Google 23% a year, Salesforce 40% a year, but we can't scale the University of North Carolina or the University of Colorado more than 0.4% a year. That's how fast our public universities have been growing. There's a lot of data on how expensive it's become, but it's really more a question of access. And what ends up happening is a lot of good kids get a, end up getting arbitrage down to a second tier school that through cartel pricing that we engage in at universities that make OPEC look like amateur hour, a lot of kids end up paying a Mercedes price for a Hyundai, graduate with a degree that they may not get a return on investment for, but they leave with $100,000 or $150,000 in debt, which is not only emotionally and psychologically and financially stressful, it's bad for the economy because they become more risk averse. They're not as likely to get married, buy a house. So there's a higher ed is a real problem. Now, in terms of the attention economy, anytime you have an asset transformed or refined into something more valuable, whether it's oil out of the ground into petroleum or attention into money, there are externalities, there's emissions. And we're finding that the longer you let the externalities go, the more expensive they are to unwind. And we're finding that with climate change. When you take people's attention and use it as a means of serving them ads, what ultimately happens is the way to scale that is through algorithms. And the algorithms aren't malicious and they're not really what you call benign. They're just totally neutral. Maybe that's the term. They're just totally indifferent. And what they find is that if I can enrage you, you're more likely to come back and be on the platform like longer. Enragement equals engagement. So the algorithms take content that's likely to enrage us and promote it and give it more sunlight. So if you say, oh, I'd love to have a conversation around vaccines, what are the potential downsides and everyone's civil, that thread gets some engagement. But if you say masks don't work and the vaccines have been proven to alter your DNA, people weigh in support, upset, call you an idiot, the people who disagree with you. And that thread turns into a lot of comments, a lot of Nissan ads, and a lot of revenue for the platform. So unfortunately, there's an economic incentive around turning us into Tyrannosaurus Rexes where we're drawn towards movement and violence rather than having a civil conversation. And of all these problems, whether it's teen depression, whether it's failing young men, income inequality, exploding costs in higher education, the problem, I would argue, is the biggest problem relative to the attention it's getting is that if America's problems are a horror movie, you would say the call is coming from inside the house. And that is a third of each party, political party, sees the other party as their mortal enemy. 54% of Democrats are worried their kid's going to marry a Republican. It's just, we've decided we're each other's enemy. And it's not only dangerous, it's just flat out wrong. Americans' greatest allies will always be other Americans. And we have these platforms that are motivated to continue that division of polarization. And then those platforms can be weaponized by bad actors abroad. I believe that the GRU and the CCP are actively pouring fuel. I don't know. I don't believe I know. I've seen data pouring fuel on the flames of divisiveness that we give, we start the content. We have CNN and Fox. They inflame each other. We elect leaders now, not based on who we think will do the best job representing our interests, but who's most likely to enrage and make the other side look stupid. And I think that's what people missed about Trump. I think there's a lot of Republicans that really aren't comfortable with his behavior, but it feels really good to have someone constantly dunk on the other side as well as he did. And that's become the new litmus test for voting. So I think this divisiveness, I think us eating ourselves from the inside out is the biggest threat to our society right now. Because if you look at us objectively, comparatively to other nations, our GDP growth has been as strong as any nation over the last 30 years, but China, and it's probably been more consistent than China's. 
we are food independent, we're energy independent. If you want to talk about unicorns, we still produce the most valuable companies in the world. What are the most talented, hardest working people in the world all have in common? They all want to come here. Objectively, when you look at the United States, compared to our neighbors, our competitors, if you will, we're doing great. Internally, people feel worse about America than they've ever felt. And we don't trust each other, nor do we like each other very much. Uh, so I think uh, a huge issue for us, and everybody has an obligation, how do you take the temperature down? I try not to get back in people's faces on Twitter. Occasionally, someone would say something, they'd say something out of line, and I thought, oh, they're sticking their chin out. I'm going to meet them with a fist of stone, and people love dunking and clapping back. And I thought, okay, do I really need to do that? Isn't part of being a man occasionally just showing some grace, and you don't have to respond to every slight. But as a nation, I think we just need to take the temperature down. And I also think we need to figure out a way to hold platforms liable when they spread conspiracy theory. The right would call it censorship. I don't think it's censorship. I think it's creating algorithms that don't give certain information more reach than it would get on its own. If someone wants to say vaccines alter your DNA, I think they should be able to say that. You know, one of the hallmarks of a free society is that pretty much anyone can say pretty much anything about pretty much anybody else. I think that's really important. The question is, when you start spreading election misinformation or vaccine information, because it enrages people, because it's so controversial, should that company be incented to give it more reach than it would on its own merits? So I think this internal division and us de deciding that the enemy is each other is our biggest challenge. Well, as I read the book and kind of came throughout all of it, I came to a similar conclusion that I think Seth Godin has come to on climate change. And that is, I think many of the things that you highlight in the book were that along the way since World War II to where we are now, we fundamentally have changed systems many of them in a negative way, such as not spending as much on infrastructure, not spending enough on healthcare or completely changing the way we were doing healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, which over decades have significant ramifications on what we're doing today. Offshoring of labor, another one where we've taken pretty much this huge amount of blue collar work and now middle-class work, and we've given it away, which I think is one of the leading causes to the income inequality that we're facing now. But myself, uh, I like what you said about that everyone should serve, because when I look at it, there are only about 2% of us in America now who are veterans. And I think it would give people a much better appreciation and love of the country having done that. At least it did that for me. But as I got out of the military and my path was I went to Booz and Co and did strategy consulting like your KKR um, reference. I then did big four consulting, became a practice leader, went through the whole Arthur Anderson demise. I actually worked mm -hmm. in Houston and then I went into Fortune 50 and whether I was on this consulting side or the C-suite side of these Fortune 50 companies, the thing that really became apparent was what was driving us was not benefiting the consumer. It was not benefiting the customer. It was not benefiting the employee. Everything was looked at through the lens of creating shareholder value. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the largest systems that is fundamentally <laughs> ruining who we are right now. And it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Uh, I interviewed Jean Olwang. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's the head of Virgin Unite, Sir Richard Branson's philanthropical arm. But Richard Branson formed a group of leaders, Mark Benioff, you mentioned Salesforce, he's one of them, but they're called the B team. And they're trying to look at how do we set up companies to compete and be valued on something other than shareholder value. And I just wanted to ask you, because I thought you rightly brought it up, why do you think shareholder value has done so much damage and what would you recommend to counteract it? So it's a complicated question because 
when we started optimizing in the 70s for just shareholder value, everything was about shareholder value. It no longer became about the community. It no longer came about trying to build as many jobs as possible. It became about this convenient singular metric of shareholder value. And a lot of people now refer to it as sociopathic economics. So when you started optimizing purely for shareholder value, when you started compensating senior leadership and boards of directors based on the, the share price, you would on a moment's notice, if you could replace humans with machines and okay, I'm not a Luddite, but you would not potentially think about keeping a person because you have to pay payroll taxes on a person, not on a robot. So there's all these economic incentives to not be empathetic to the people who don't own shares. If you're optimizing for the 1% of the population that owns 90% of the shares, you're going to end up with income inequality and you're going to end up with a middle class that's hurting. Now, I'm cynical that I know Mark Benioff and I think the world of him. And I think he's one of those individuals that does think about stakeholder capitalism. I think waiting on the better angels of CEOs and boards is not an effective strategy. What I think you need is a government that doesn't allow companies to take 50% of their profits overseas to tax havens such that they can juice profits and make more money. I think you need a progressive tax structure. I don't think you should be I think people who know that their platforms are depressing teen girls who are now engaging in self-harm 80% more often should do perp walks. I think the government needs to step in and do things like, and they've just done, tax shareholder buybacks, recognizing that we need companies to be more economically incentivized to invest in growth, new plants, new technologies, more jobs as opposed to just buying back shares. I love the idea of trying to figure out a mentality and a way to say to corporate America, you have a role and should be thinking about other stakeholders. I'm not convinced it's gonna happen. I think that a key component of democracy is this full body contact violence at a corporate level that then creates profits that sits on a bed of empathy that people elected by our populace decide how to reinvest in the middle class and make sure that there's dignity and work. I'd like to see $23 an hour minimum wage, which is why did I get $23? That's how much minimum wage would be if it had just kept pace with inflation or productivity. Why wouldn't all employees across America get to share in the productivity gains of America? Would the stock market go down? Yes. Would certain consumer stocks get hit really hard? Yes. Would some companies, restaurant companies, some services companies go out of business? Yes. And it would be worth it. It wouldn't solve poverty, it wouldn't solve diabetes, it wouldn't solve homelessness, but it would help all of those things. And so optimizing for shareholder value, I like the idea of corporations pretty focused on it, and I don't care how much rhetoric. I think you're always going to have leaders who think about that stuff, but at the end of the day, the for-profit company is there to create economic value. What I think you need is a series of laws and regulations that say, look, Nike, FedEx, you can't pay zero tax. We need our best companies to contribute back to the system. Look, Apple, you can't license your intellectual property to Ireland and then charge billions of dollars to the US for that IP, thereby increasing the profits in a low tax domain and decreasing profits in a high tax domain. We gotta pay for our Navy. We gotta pay for social security. We gotta pay for after school programs. And I think we've got to be more, hold these firms that are damaging, especially the ones that seem to be preying on our youth, some of the social media platforms liable. So I think these problems are solvable without waiting for the better angels of CEOs and boards to show up. Because we've been shaming CEOs for 10 and 20 years. We've been talking about responsible capitalism. And I see well-publicized examples of it but I don't really see it. What I see is a group of individuals in a democracy where you can fly private, have better healthcare, give your kids more opportunities, have a broader selection set of mates based on how much money you have. And people will always optimize for getting more money and they will come up with rationalizations that compromise their decisions such that they get more money. And that's part of capitalism. What I think the failure has been is that we have not put in guardrails or insured that when manufacturing is shifted overseas and people are laid off to retrain those people, and we have the tax revenue, we need 23% of our GDP to run our government. 
So we're running deficits. So call it the total tax burden on everything is 21%. Let's say all corporate taxes were 30% and we got to away with all this ridiculous inversions and offshore tax havens. That means you'd need about to get about 15 to 18% from consumers. So you could have a tax code where you have a flat tax up to 100 of 10% and 20% over $100,000. And I think people would be shocked how low taxes could be if everybody paid them. I want a strategy where our government and our elected leaders say the middle class is super important. We're going to reinvest. Let's be honest, we've been weaponized by corporations and wealthy people. We've created all sorts of loopholes. And it's great that billionaires want to talk about stakeholder capitalism. I don't see it. I think you need systemic nationwide change that is enforced by laws. That's where I think, that's where I think we move the needle. Okay. And I could ask you a million questions because I found your book just so interesting, but I'm going to end on this one. What would you hope a reader or someone who's listening today would take away from a drift? That's a really generous question, John. One, the most patriotic Americans are veterans like yourself. And the surveys show that because they've invested so much in their country, they're invested in their country. And anyone who has kids can relate to this. By the time your kid's an adult, you've just invested so much in this thing, you can't help but not love it and really be pulling for your son or daughter's success. And that's how veterans feel about our country. I find the least patriotic are the most blessed, and that is our tech innovators. Uh, I find that these are the most fortunate people, and they're the first ones to be critical of our government and say profane things about our elected leaders, or basically the kind of general gestalt or message from tech leaders to government is, you should just stay out of the way. You're incompetent. And it all started with this Reagan scourge against government. And I find it really obnoxious and really ungrateful. If you look up and down the Pacific coast, you have companies, organizations that have built the value of, a, of the GDP of a small Central American nation, have obviously Snap and SpaceX in Los Angeles. And you go up north, you get to Meta, you get to Google, you get to Salesforce, you go up further north, you get Microsoft, you get Amazon. And then something happens just above Seattle. It stops. There's one, Lululemon in Vancouver. And then you go to you go further south and you get to Qualcomm and you get to these amazing biotech companies and then something happens when you hit the Mexican border, it stops. And you'd have to go another 4,000 miles to Argentina to get to Mercado Libre. And yet these individuals find time to be critical of our leadership in the United States. So I think just generally taking pause and just realize how wonderful and prosperous America is that America is the worst country in the world, except for all the rest, if that's what you need to believe. So I think there needs to just be a renewed sense of appreciation for our government. And then when I first wrote the four about big tech, it started out as a love letter and turned into a cautionary tale. The more I learned about these companies, this was the opposite experience. I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. I know the problems I can write about them, but what I found is as you look at any one of these problems, teen depression at the hands of social media, polarization because of our media enraging us, income inequality because of a regressive tax structure, whatever it might be, these are all, these are all problems of our own making and they can absolutely be unmade. And that is in summary, and there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with it. The incumbents and the people who've benefited from income inequality will have us believe that there are bigger factors at play, and these are intractable, unfixable problems. We have faced, you're a veteran, there's a photojournalist, I think her name is Maria Amalo, who's been colorizing World War II photos. And she has this amazing colorized photo showing a landing craft coming up on Omaha Beach and the front gate has just been dropped into the water and 16 GIs, average age 26, average monthly salary, $800 on inflation justice basis, wading through the water, thinking about what waited for them on the beach. Two or three of those men would not make it off the beach. And I imagine them turning around and just as we can go back in history through photographs, some sort of suspension of the space-time continuum and they can see us and they see our problems income inequality, teen depression, polarization of media. And I imagine they would look at us and say, look what I'm facing. You can't fix that. You're safe. You have massive productivity. You have technology that's incredible. You can cure diseases. 
and you can't deal with that? Look at what, what waits for me on the beach. So I came out of this really hopeful that there is, we've faced down much bigger problems than the ones we face now. And it's just more a matter of will, if you will. Okay. Well, Scott, it was truly an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. And I highly encourage the listeners to pick up a copy of your book. I'll have it in the show notes. John, thanks so much for your time and your good work. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Scott Galloway. And I wanted to thank Scott and Penguin Random House for the honor and privilege of having him on the show. Links to all things Scott will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature on the show. It helps support the show and makes it free for our listeners. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles, where I now have over 16,000 subscribers and over 400 videos. Please go subscribe, check it out. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. You can find me at John R. Miles, both on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want to know how I'm able to book amazing guests like Scott Galloway, it's because of my network. Go out there and build yours before you need it. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with Dr. Sherry Walling, who is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her new book, Touching Two Worlds, explores new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. I think one of the real tragedies of suicide is that it's sort of a salacious story. It's like, he died by suicide, right? It's a story where the end of the story sort of takes priority over everything that came before that. And I think when we talk about people who've died by suicide, again, that becomes like the lead, that becomes the headline. And so if you know someone who has lost someone that they love in this way, like, let's talk about all the other parts of that person's life. The fee for the show is that you share it with others and you find something useful or interesting. If you know somebody who could really use the message that we talked about today in discussing a drift, Scott Galloway, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give the show is that you share it with those that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. Until next time, live life passion struck.